0: Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, uh, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White.
1: I'm Garima talwar Kapoor,
0: And I'm Alvin Tejo. We have another great pod for you today. I know I say that every time, but uh, I mean it every time. Member of... uh, Provincial Parliament for Ottawa vanier Lucille Collard joins to talk to Alvin about issues impacting Eastern Ontario in his ongoing Better Know A Region series. Um, This is where we try to get out of the Toronto GTA bubble to foreground issues impacting the great diversity of communities uh, who live uh, in the different regions of our province. Uh, It's a great discussion. Stay tuned. But first, the inescapable news that I'm sure is top of mind for everyone right now, 6,500 cases of COVID-19 per day. Uh, That is our current direction, according to new modeling produced by the province's science advisory and modeling consensus tables. Here are just a few of the highlights. First, the province modeled out 3% and 5% growth scenarios. We're currently apparently closer to the 5% range. And in this construct, the best we can expect if this thing starts to turn around right now is for cases to exceed 2,000 cases per day, which translates to about 150 ICU admissions, which is the point at which we start seeing non-emergency surgeries and treatments Starting to get postponed. Uh, it is possible, however, that we will hit as high as 6,500 cases per day and over 400 ICU admissions, which is the point at which uh, it becomes hard, as I understand it, to have any significant volume of important preventative procedures in the ICU. These uh, are things like cancer treatments, these are heart surgeries. You know, non emergency can make it seem like it is. Not important, but these things are super important to people's uh, livelihoods and can be life or death. Um, And speaking of life or death, in long-term care, it means more people dying, a trend that we've already started seeing uh, with 93 homes in Ontario currently managing an outbreak and over a third of the deaths since August 1st coming in the last seven days. So really worrying trend. Safe to say, all of this is bad, um, and so maybe just like starting, I, I want to check in with everyone here on the seriousness of this moment, um, and I'm wondering what is on everyone's mind as we sort of stare down at some of this information.
1: Yeah, I feel like we've we've discussed this so much, and on our older podcasts. So if if folks like us who are who are not scientists, I'll just say that can understand the gravity of the situation in the summer, late summer, as. As school started to pick up, we kind of knew that we were we were entering this, and so what's been re- released by the Toronto Star and their reporting around what was po- a political decision versus what is good policy advice um, from the COVID uh, tables just goes to show how much we've politicized this thing. But what really matters is that we know that people who are low-income, who are racialized, continue to bear the brunt of of this pandemic. And as much as it's clear that there's a, a political decision versus a policy or science-based decision that's being made, it also dawns on me that there is, there is uh, science in other areas, like on how to protect people um, who are precariously employed, that are not getting the same type of uh, backup. And if this is how the framework was created, I think that there's, that there's problems here. I'm wondering what other folks think about, you know, not necessarily about the framework, because the framework doesn't make sense, but rather <laughs> the, the tension between science, policy, and political decision-making that's going on.
2: So I I saw on the Twitterverse uh, this week, there's that meme going around with uh, the Premier, Doug Ford, looking like Uncle Sam, saying, "We, I need you to die for your economy, for our economy. And so that was sort of telling to me in that people obviously see the risk that we're facing here. And everybody understands, I think, everybody seems to understand the consequences of um more cases, more ICU admissions, more deaths, and what that's supposed to mean. And if it's all at the cost of, you know, trying to salvage, uh, or maintain the economy to a certain point, I mean, that's, if that's the decision you're making, then just be upfront with it, right? Like, I acknowledge that, you know, over the next year, another 10,000 Canadians are going to die. But that lets us save you know, 50% of our GDP, and I'm willing to make that trade. Because that's what you're fucking doing, right? Like you're making the decision based on what you think is important for the economy, against the number of lives that are going to be lost. So just admit that. And then let's, you know, maybe debate that piece of, you know, how important that actually is. Because I think there have been studies that have come out recently talking about how Canada has spent more per capita of its people uh, for more on its from its GDP on the recovery to try and help maintain and balance um, the COVID response right and so some people throw that as a criticism of the federal government saying they're spending too much but I would say it's it's a way for our federal government to to say that it's important for us to stabilize as the government the economy while protecting as many people as possible right and I think you can see this week <clears throat> the prime minister talking to the premiers and trying to say, listen, you got to get your houses in order here. Um, these are getting out of control, and they're getting out of control incredibly fast. The second wave is more dangerous, I think, because people are more complacent, and they're, they've moved on, and they don't necessarily see this as much of an issue as it clearly is or going to be. Yet we should be having a more, I think, severe response than we did the first during the first wave.
3: Yeah, I think for me, it's just, it's sort of a sad realization of the sort of time and discussion that's been wasted for so long and for so many months due to a lack of imagination and a lack of preparation. We've seen for a long time surveys showing that a majority of people have thought throughout this pandemic that the worst was yet to come. So it seems like everyone, it seems like a majority of people had that expectation. Government theoretically would have had the same feeling and yet in ontario at least there was no there was insufficient movement to make the investments early spend the money that needed to be spent early in order to to cushion us for an inevitable wave like this in the fall and it's just sort of sad that that's the situation that we're in now i mean you know this thing is it's 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 a slow build and intervention now is going to take weeks to work through and in that time a lot of people are going to get sick, and a lot of people are going to die. And we've already seen it, uh, you know, for instance, in long-term care, with so many people uh, dying just in the last seven days. The Toronto Star looked again at the data, found again correlations with private long-term care homes having worse outbreaks. So, not like the not necessarily more likely to have an outbreak, but once you have an outbreak, if you are in a private long-term care home, you are more likely to die, and that is still the case. Uh, even after we have had, you know, not actual full blown inquiries, but supposed investigations into these things, not enough has been done to change that that fact. Right? We've yep. known for a long time from other jurisdictions that, you know, we don't have to just compare ourselves to Germany and France and the Netherlands the way that the government's data always does. We could just look at places that have actually successfully bent the curve and have done innovative things to actually test and actually track people so that they haven't had to shut down. And if a decision was made as a society to go in that direction months ago, we could have prepared for this and we didn't. And so it's sort of just a, I just have a sort of a general sadness about the lack of leadership, the lack of uh, forethought that got us to this place.
0: Yeah. I I, I echo that feeling of sadness. and. Uh, Maybe that's a good uh, segue to turn to the provinces' response and and what it has been, um, because it has actually been difficult to follow in some cases. Um, So uh, last week, uh, I'm guessing most listeners of the pod uh, would have uh, learned that a Toronto Star investigation revealed that the government rejected advice from Public Health Ontario when it created its new color-coded framework for responding to COVID-19, but. I must admit, even as someone following the story, I needed to remind myself of how all the dots connected from you know how we landed where we were with the stages and the colored system we had in the spring to where we are now. So I just want to start at the beginning and uh, Grima, m- maybe with you, like go through a little bit how the framework was created.
1: On some of our older podcasts, we've discussed how the province was coming under sustained pressure to release a fall preparedness plan, as we discussed um, a bit earlier but when case counts started to rise in early October, the province announced a 20-day move for Toronto, Ottawa, Peel and York to quote modified stage two um, where indoor dining and gyms would be shut down and gatherings were limited to to 10 indoors and 25 outdoors. But uh, moving into October, we know that The premier has made it clear that he was not supportive of continuing these restrictions on an ongoing basis and has asked public health experts to give him a framework that would provide a roadmap to easing restrictions. And that's how we have this new color-coded framework um, that we've got today. And we've, we've kind of touched on whether this makes sense or not. And I guess, Alexi, for those who haven't read the new framework, what feels like the 100th framework for the province. What's new about the one that we are moving into?
3: So yeah, the new framework was released on the 3rd of November. Uh, It introduces five sets of restrictions that uh, would apply regionally across Ontario, depending on certain uh, epidemiological metrics. And this is something, of course, we in the pod have called for for a long time. So good to see, just generally, good to see the government actually putting together some epidemiological metrics and saying, Look, we're going to, you know, have some data, and we're going to make decisions based on this data, and not based on sort of the, you know, the swaying popular opinion about um, about shutdowns, so that maybe people can plan ahead a little bit more in their lives. The zones specifically range from prevent, which is colored green, uh, where most things are open. Things like dancing, karaoke, meetings, event spaces can be up to fifty people. Movie theaters are open, all that kind of stuff. Then there's protect and restrict, which seems to be about limiting hours, uh, introducing new seating limits, taking more diligent attendance records, but not quite closing anything just yet. Then we have control, which restricts indoor activity to 10 people in most venues, closes movie theaters, other performance venues, that kind of thing. And uh, there's also a lockdown category, which is not rigidly defined, but references stage one, which in the province's prior framework – Closed most non-essential businesses and restricted gathering limits to five. So yeah, was there anything missing from that?
2: I mean, my kids are in school right now, and it and like it doesn't seem like any of the colors sort of in sort of affect whether or not kids are or are not in school. Right? It just seems to well, whatever the limit happens to be in your region, we're still going to have twenty five kids in the classroom, um, teaching with a teacher, and you know, good luck.
0: Yeah, that's a really important clarification, Alvin. I think there's a couple things that um, this framework leaves out. Uh, um, like you said, Alexi, I think one of the best things they did was they put, actually put targets between moving the spaces, but there's a lot that it doesn't speak to, schools being a notable um, omission. Um, I think also, you know, the fact that it takes you until uh, the control phase before anything shuts down, and that really is just. In control, I believe it's 10 on indoor dining is still allowed. Indoor dining is still allowed. Gyms are still allowed. And so, you know, when it's up to public health officials, you know, Eileen Villa in Toronto has clarified that gyms and restaurants must be closed, but there's nothing in the provincial framework that says, you know, you can have you can be in the control code red phase. And unless your public health official says no indoor dining, indoor dining can continue. And that is that means indoor dining continues right up into lockdown and it's a really hard cliff. The last thing I think they did that was that I think was the source of a lot of the controversy around this was goosing up the targets four times above what public health recommended, which we would not have known if not for reporting. So I want to dive into that criticism a little bit. Um, Opposition parties have started using much, I think reacting mainly to the story, have started using much harsher language with respect to the government's handling of this. I've noticed Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca saying that Doug Ford had betrayed Ontario by doing this. Um, So Alvin, I'm curious, Um, if you can give us sort of a rundown of what the opposition partners uh, and the reaction to this has been.
2: Yeah, I I think clearly people are starting to feel like it's not um, that the government hasn't done enough. Um, They're definitely using harsher language. I saw a post that basically said the premier lied, um, which is, you know, harsh words in politics. And, you know, the framework was not popular with experts to begin with when they when it was released. Um, it was widely criticized um, in terms of the maintenance of indoor dining. Gyms and casinos are still allowed in the red control stage before shutdown, despite the limitations to 10 people. These are the places where the pandemic is raging the most and are still allowed to have indoor dining, which you mentioned, and a lot of health experts on social media have already criticized this, uh, including the Critical care head from St Michael's Hospital, for example, but the temperature really started turning up when it was revealed that key figures around the public health table, the modelling table, the very doctors that are advising the premier and the government on the response, when they were asked by the media, by the Toronto Star specifically, that they were surprised by the numbers that they um, were much higher than what they would have recommended. For a region to stay in green, the prevent zone, they thought the targets were twice what uh, they would have recommended. And for the red control, they were four times what was recommended. That's what prompted the province on Friday last week to revise these metrics to what was originally recommended. And this came after lots of criticism from uh, or to the health minister, Christine Elliott, for suggesting that multiple sources have been consulted on the metrics, but actually refusing to name the sources that recommended the higher metrics. So, I mean, clearly they're still playing politics with the recommendations. And I was reading this morning of some criticism of our public health officials who could on their own sort of enforce or implement different um, different lockdowns or standards and are sort of still kowtowing to the politicians a little bit and sort of in terms of letting them... Um, you know, guide the direction of of the health uh, restrictions. So I guess a question for the group here is, what do we actually think is going on? And how did the province sort of land here?
0: Yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, I I, I continue to be just floored at the government's response to that story coming out, basically saying that, you know, there were other sources that are consulted, but not really naming those. It's pretty clear to me that those other sources were the PC caucus and maybe, you know, like uh, that there was a political consideration here. And I think when things got much worse then you know, for them to sort of publicly clarify that they were going back to what was originally recommended, um, you know, it, it was just a yeah, a really bad look that I think is reflective of a, you know, a a government that philosophically when these is does not think that it can maintain internal support um, for a broad support for public measures. And that is a huge liability for the province. I mean, you know, the week in the weeks prior, we saw videos from PC caucus members saying that, you know, pushing back against restrictions. We've heard about this debate around the cabinet table. We know it's an issue that Doug Ford is is managing. And while it is unfortunate that following the science is not this government's North Star, it is a a reality that we need to acknowledge and that there is political, you know, this is a decision of government and this is the government we've elected. And they they do not see following the science as the North Star.
3: Yeah, I'm just confused because So I agree with you that this is probably just a political decision where they all got together and said, let's water these down because we want – we think there's this – we see this whole problem as a trade-off between health and the economy and we just want to move the dial toward the economy and it's that simple. Um, But I mean just thinking back to our time in government, like there's some basic things you do if you're putting out something of this – Nature and one of those is to line up a bunch of impartial people to support what you're going to say, especially on something this important. And so, I'm just sort of like lost wondering how they didn't do that, like how they weren't prepared for the obvious question, which was, Who supports this? Whose recommendations did you take to back up these numbers? Uh, And they seem so caught off guard by you know having to make up these sort of vague, like, Oh, well, we consulted a bunch of people, like, that's just. That just seems like such a one-on-one kind of mistake for the government to make at this point, and I think it just clarifies like they they just have no they don't seem to have any conception as to the number how how crazy the numbers they put out would appear to people like this is not it's not us like a slider bar where you can just sort of like trade off one to one between the economy and and public health here right like there are points where the COVID situation gets astronomically worse because you hit inflection points where your hospital system cannot keep up, where your contact tracers cannot keep up. There's sort of a series of these, and we know this from the science. You can't just pick new metrics out of thin air. Like these things are tied back to your own capacity. And the fact that they could just think, oh, well, we can just massage these ourselves, which just seems to be what they're doing, I just don't I, like it just seems to betray such a fundamental misunderstanding with how you set these kinds of metrics uh, and and what kind of uh, inputs you should be thinking about when you're when you're doing that
1: yeah I think you know on that what we again think of as a scientist or as an expert is important to interrogate so if you had an economist and an epidemiologist look at the framework together both would both would agree that it's not a good framework right and that it is rooted in confusion and that you're actually not doing either of your goals flattening the curve or supporting the economy. And so outside of not even having experts um, and people speak to whether they support your your framework or not, I actually do think that that the government would be hard pressed to find a economist to back up this framework. And that for me just doesn't make sense from a from a government that wants to continuously support businesses and i think that what we're seeing now in terms of the factors of transmission so in workplaces and schools is reflective of, of our past of underfunding in of public services in the past and so when you look at peel region and you look at brampton more uh, specifically the the urgency and the crisis in brampton is is not only about the reali- the sociodemographic realities of Brampton, but it's also reflective of underfunding in in education and in health in in Brampton more specifically. And so, I think that that the situation that the governments put themselves in is not only untenable, but it I I yeah don't know who they can find to support them outside of premiers across the country that seem um, hell bent on not taking any support or using the support that the feds are giving them.
0: So Alvin, you mentioned uh, before that this seems to have opened up the floodgates to a more sustained line of attack. And so I may be curious what what we think of, you know, the opposition party's handling so far and, you know, what we think they should be doing. What are the most salient points? What do people need to know about this government's response to understand, you know, what the gaps have been?
2: So, I I mean, they've obviously taken a harder line. uh, Stephen Duca said, like today, he said, Ford's lies cost lives. And I mean, while it's sort of a catchy hashtag, one of the things I'm actually really worried about is sort of the the further polarization and politicization of this as an issue. And I've been seeing it a lot on social media. You see it a lot in the US, but it's definitely coming here. Whenever I sort of post anything about COVID and what we need to do next or share something along those lines, you know, I'm getting some pushback for the pushback with people saying, well, the cure can't be worse than the disease. And, you know, these numbers are, and like the whole fake news argument, and it shouldn't be a left or right issue. And I'm really worried about that. And the harder people like Stephen or Andrea Horvath push back against the government as a political tool to try and, you know, lower his numbers, the more concerned I am that we are making public health a political football that were saying that, you know, conservatives are for the economy and for less uh, COVID restrictions and progressive parties are the opposite because they don't care as much about uh, the economy, but they actually want to save more lives. Like, that's not the argument we should be having. I, I really liked before when they were pushing, you know, the recommendations and what they should actually be doing. Now, I think potentially the opposition parties are seeing The Ford government is sort of deaf to those recommendations now and need to take a harder line in order to potentially, I guess, move the government. Uh, I don't know that the government's going to respond to that type of criticism in in a positive way at all. But does it lead to, you know, a different government in two years? That's two years from now. How many people are going to die between now and then until we actually get these things um, changed? So I don't know. If they can be shamed into doing the right thing, then then go for it. Um, But I'd still rather see the opposition parties constructively saying these are the things that the government should be doing, providing the real options, showing people showing voters that they can be the bigger, um, the bigger person in the uh, in the conversation here and saying, saying all the right things in terms of protecting the economy and, and obviously trying to save as many lives as possible.
0: I would just say on, on this one, I was I was thinking a lot about the I would agree with you on the on the like, I'm actually just not sure that the line that it a lie holds true, like they, the government made a decision that was bad. And I think that that is more true. Um, and the decision, it's a really clear line of attack is the decision in that timeline that we just went through shows through from the beginning, you know, when case counts were rising, the ford ford government asked for a framework from public health experts that would allow them to ease restrictions no matter what like that was that was the goal of developing this framework that's why it's bad that's driving the process and that's that's a leadership question i might also consider asking christine elliott to resign at this point like if like i were the opposition parties and you want to do something political i might start asking for that just given the performance of the last week um i think it's like super weak. Uh, she ducked me to interviews for a day. Um, but that's, that's just, you know, if you if you need a, if you need a super partisan angle to like, you know, uh, that that's, that's, that's what I might take.
2: I mean, the interesting thing here, Chris, I just want to sort of wrap this up a little bit, is that if they really wanted to do the right thing to protect as many people as possible, they would hand the keys over to the uh, public health officials, right? They would say, whatever they're going to say, we are going to do because it's, utmost of importance to us to make sure that as many Ontarians survive as possible. Our job, that's their job. Our job is to provide the resources necessary for our economy to be stabilized and to maintain and recover from uh, this pandemic, right? Their job is to keep people alive. We're going to do what they tell us to do. We're going to make sure people have jobs at the end of the day, right?
0: And I'd argue another angle of that is that, you know, there's a public that needs, I think, some pretty sustained communication, a public in Ontario that is facing something really hard. Um, you know, it seems inevitable that we may be pushed into that gray lockdown territory just with the way the province has set up the metrics, um, at least in the hotspot zones. And so, you know, if I'm in government, I'm also trying to ask the question, and I'm curious for your thoughts on this, how do we get the public ready for this? What factors do we need to consider? What What is... Um, you know, what is the role of government in speaking to people about what is to come?
1: I mean, communications has not been any government's strong suit thus far in the pandemic. There's been a lot of discussion around a circuit breaker. And so, you know, you just shut everything down for two weeks and then slowly reopen afterwards. And I'd say to any any idea around a grey lockdown or a circuit breaker, We cannot do that uh, without supporting people and families in doing so. And so what we I constantly go back to the economic factors that drive people to go into work. And if they're not going to have safe workplaces, if they're not going to be compensated well for providing the essential services that they do, right, like something like uh, folks that work in Amazon are are critical to folks like us who are sitting at home and ordering things online. And unless we're going to shut that down, um, because we can't find ways to compensate people fairly for the work that they're doing. I just, I don't think you can lead into a lockdown until, until it's clear how governments are going to support people. And it cannot be, Oh, we've got CRB EI, All of that is working because that is not, we know that it's not enough for folks that fall out of those systems.
2: I mean, people are already confused. They're still confused about what the lockdown procedures, what color, what do the colors mean now? I thought we were in phase two, section 3A, you know what I mean? And then as we change things from from region to region, like, oh, wait, I'm in Halton now, I can go and do this. But when I was in Peel, I can only do this. Right, and and then you know the rules around schools are all different. People are confused. People are confused as fuck, and they don't understand what they're supposed to do. They want you know clear guidelines. They want to know how do I see my family at Christmas? Tell me, give me the give me the layout. Do I have to take two weeks off and make sure I'm isolated, working from home for those two weeks? Well, then tell me I need to do that, and then go get tested, and then I can go see my family, right? You need to give people hope and give that sort of light at the end of the tunnel while also saying this is what you can and can't do right now and it needs to be clear right considering we've been in this pandemic for 10 months now going into 10 months soon um it's amazing that we're we're not more clear on on what we can and can't do depending on where we are just yet
0: yeah like if you don't have the the talent in-house i might hire like a pr firm like specifically around like holidays and how to translate the framework into advice for what people should do with their relatives on holidays. Cause that has been such a huge gap the whole time. And what I, the thing that actually has worried me the most just in this past weekend is the amount of discussion I've seen online and the newspaper editorials about Diwali. And I think trying to blame and cast like some latent racism in, in, in that criticism when they like, it's the exact same issue that we had for thanksgiving we saw a big boom after thanksgiving we're gonna have a big one around christmas like these are the things that we know are coming they matter to people you know my parents are already calling me about what we're doing in christmas and we have no clue what to do um and you know i think thinking through how to talk to people just in super practical terms is something that hasn't been done yet the framework certainly doesn't do it it's not going to help do it so you know like like get someone on this like now (laughs)
1: Yeah, I'd say that as somebody that celebrated Diwali this weekend, it was the most heartbreaking thing to not be able to do, you know, given the massive amount of sacrifices that everybody's made in terms of connecting with families and, and your loved ones. It it was really hard to to move everything online and do, you know, if you're going to have a if you were going to set up for prayers and have a zoom Um, if you wanted to drop off any sweets, then you basically had to like drop off at a porch and then drive away and text people being like, Oh, just dropped off something for you. Right. And um, and so while there will be a blimp um, in cases and there will be an increase in cases in the following two weeks, there was a dismal failure in communications again, in focusing on on people around around the festivities of this weekend and recognizing how important um, this weekend was for people. Right? It's it's about overcoming um, overcoming evil, light over darkness, and so for a lot of people, this was this was a way in being able to say we're we're at a crossroads here. And we want to be able to celebrate as best as we can uh, without undermining public health. And instead, what we've been seeing is these stories around, you know, people in, again, the sociodemographic factors of Brampton, of people who are trucking our our food across the continent so that we can actually all eat um, so that they are working at Amazon distribution centers that fails or that goes by the wayside. And we're not discussing those things. We're just we're talking about personal responsibility, which continues to be this government's way of, of saying the only way that we're going to get out of this is if we change personal responsibility. And uh, we're, it's failed for the past couple of months. I'm not sure why we think it'll be any different now.
0: I think that's a good place to leave it. And uh, we'll, after a quick break, be going to Alvin's interview with uh, Lucille Collard. Uh, fun times with COVID, always.
2: All right, welcome back, everybody. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, MPP Lucille Collard, who is the MPP for Ottawa Vanier. Is that right?
4: Yes, that is, right.
2: Okay. Uh, was elected in a in a by-election and uh, has been obviously involved uh, in, in Eastern Ontario and in Ottawa quite a bit. And so we're glad to have you on to the pod. And uh, how are you doing?
4: I'm doing very well. And thank you for having me, Alvin. This is uh, obviously always a pleasure to talk about... My environment, my reality. And as you mentioned, I was recently elected. So it's kind of been a baptism by fire for me entering in this uh, function, uh, you know, at the same time that COVID hit. So nothing is ordinary, everything is extraordinary, and we have extraordinary challenges to, to meet. But uh, you also mentioned that uh, I've been involved in the community before, and that's true. So for uh, 10 years prior to becoming an MPP, I was a school trustee and the chair of the school board. So I do have an appreciation of the challenges of education and uh, I'm really connected with my community.
2: That's great. And so this segment is called uh, Better Know a Region. And, you know, the majority of Ontarians and a lot of people in in and around the greater Toronto area get uh, accused of thinking they're the center of the universe and not (laughs) necessarily understanding some of the uh, regional concerns and some of the unique, uh, parts of the rest of Ontario. And we've gone through Southwestern Ontario, we've gone through Northern Ontario, and we wanted you on today to talk about specifically Eastern Ontario, just because there is quite a bit of uh, a difference there. And, and as I was touring the province, you know, culturally, it's different. It's far more bilingual. Um, (laughs) the weather is a little bit different than it is in Southern Ontario, um, (laughs) I wonder if you could just sort of walk us through some of the high-level things that you don't feel um, the majority of Ontarians necessarily understand about the uniqueness of Eastern Ontario.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's a lot to say, but I guess the major thing is realizing that uh, you know Ottawa, being the capital of of Canada, you know, has its its uniqueness. Like people come to Ottawa to visit Canada kind of thing, right? This is where all the major institutions are, not in Toronto. I mean, they are for the provincial part. Uh, and Ottawa is also unique in, in the sense that it is, and not just, uh, Ottawa, but Eastern Ontario is connected to its Quebec neighbor very closely. So in Ottawa, we have Gatineau, uh, just uh, separated by a river and many bridges uh, to allow us to cross over. And you've got the same thing in Eastern Ontario, where you know you got Montreal that is so close by. So we do have that mix of uh, you know you mentioned that there's a large part of Francophones in uh, the Eastern Ontario, and that's true. And I guess part of it is because um, also, Ottawa and Gatineau are the host of the public service uh, force where, you know, a lot of people, like the majority of people, I would say, work for the federal government. So that makes sense for a lot of public servants and a lot of them that are bilingual. So, I, I mean, th- that's for the part about the, uh, the, the the neighbors, I guess, and the francophones. Um, in, in terms of population, if I look at the demographic, like... If you look at the region of Eastern Ontario, I think, you know, you've got the rural parts where, you know, we have our farmers and small townships where everybody's pretty well off. And uh, you've got the same thing in the Ottawa and the suburbs where you've got really nice communities that are really well served uh, by, uh, you know, transportation means and uh, just overall community services. And then you have like more in the center of Ottawa and certainly more in the writing that I represent of Ottawa, Vanier, more specifically in Vanier, where you have uh, a lot of issues with poverty. Affordable housing is really, really big uh, big on the radar. Uh, housing is a pressing issue. We got a really large population of immigrants that is very diverse and more francophone than anywhere else in the province. And we also have a large uh, proportion of Inuit uh, it it's actually the largest Inuit po- population outside of Nineveh. So, you know, it makes for a very interesting fabric and a lot of needs that need to be addressed that are not necessarily at, the po- at this point, uh, which makes for a lot of challenge for me to uh, come up with.
2: So I want to touch in more on on uh, the French language services that uh, Ontario provides. And I think listeners might be surprised to, to hear that over 600,000 people in Ontario uh, are Francophone. They do speak French as their primary language. That's over 11% of the population here in Ontario. And that the services that are potentially provided for um, Franco-ontarians is isn't even across the province. And I think obviously it's probably more enhanced in, in a region like yours in eastern Ontario, where um, the the region has been designated for French language services. but that's inconsistent across the rest of the province. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the importance of having you know uh, services, government services available uh, in both languages.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And this is a very important point. And and this is a point actually that is being missed by the government that we have in place right now. I think it was made really clear, uh, you know, that Mr. Ford didn't understand uh, that there were Francophones in, in the province. He did associate them with Quebecers, which is not the case, uh, you know, uh, Ant- Franco Ontarians have a very specific and very proud culture that they're looking to expand, and it's very important for the perennity of her culture to be able to access the services and the arts and culture in her language, and the, of course, the school is a big part of it too. So. Um, you know, there, there needs to be a recognition and some investment to allow us to uh, expand our culture and not, uh, you know, sometimes we see the opposite where people are trying to assimilate their francophone with the rest of the uh, the community. So, you know, to me, it's, it's just very important that we do more in terms of recognizing the important contributions that francophones are bringing, uh, you know, to Ontario as a whole.
2: Yeah, and I always saw that there was an opportunity um, for for us to succeed as a province um, by enhancing those services and being a, a cultural center. Um, in French and, and and even economically trying to link up with, uh, you know, La Francophonie and, and taking the advantage of the opportunities that exist there because we have quite a large uh, French population here in Ontario. I do want to touch on the education piece as, as since you were a former uh, school board chair there, because I mean, personally, my, I mean, my wife is, uh, is Franco-Ontarian and, uh, my kids all go to French first language school. And so it's important to me that, uh, you know, they continue having that opportunity moving forward, but there are gaps in the system right now. And I think obviously it's easier to access if you're in Eastern Ontario, but my wife grew up in Southwestern Ontario and we live in the GTA right now. And there's a shortage of, of, uh, of teachers, um, being able to teach in French. Uh, we don't have enough, uh, early childhood educators, there's a shortage of specialized uh, instruction uh, from from francophones. I'm wondering what you imagine part of the solution could potentially be to try and address some of those issues.
4: Yeah, and that's a very important one, actually, because of course, you know, education is, uh, is the vector of a lot of, um, you know, cultural uh, expansion and uh, uh, definitely we need to recognize that shortage and and, uh, um, it's also the francophonie is also a vector to bring more immigrants but we need to be able to facilitate as well their Um, their entry into the work market, uh, and some being, you know, teacher positions. But the shortage of teachers need to be addressed. And uh, it's a complex issue, but I think it goes through, uh, first of all, we need to recognize the importance of this profession. We need to find ways to attract and uh, have a, a retention strategy as well, because what we see is that, you know, people will come into the profession of teachers, they'll stay for a little while, and then they leave because the working conditions are not, you know, uh, good enough for them to want to stay. I mean, we very well know, and that happens also on the English side, but being a teacher nowadays is very challenging because you have kids with, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, challenges and issues and a teacher on top of uh, teaching uh, has to deal with those issues. And and this is, just very demanding on on anyone. And it becomes very difficult. And without the appropriate support from the government, uh, you know, then it's easier just to say, well, I'll go and do something else. So for the Francophone community, this is just a more acute problem. Uh, and then we need to look at, how, you know, how we can give access yeah. to the profession, uh, not only to newcomers, but people that could have an in- potential interest so we need to uh, enlighten um in put forward all the advantages and, uh, you know, what this profession brings to uh, someone seeking a career. And I believe that it takes a certain type of people to become uh, teachers. You need to be uh, passionate. You need to care for kids. And uh, it's just not just a simple job. So, I mean, I, th- the best way that I see of addressing that is having a working group that b- could provide some uh, recommendation on a strategy uh, to make sure that we attract people in the the profession, but also that uh, we make sure that they they are um, uh, they're wanting to stay there.
2: Exactement. I think. Um also what you're touching on is the opportunity for students um, to continue their education and continue working uh, in French as much as possible. My wife didn't really have that opportunity in southwestern Ontario and there are a couple of colleges and universities that do offer French language programming, notably uh, the University of Ottawa does quite a bit of that although not every program is available in French and not every program is available all four years in French. I wonder what you think about the Premier's decision to initially cancel and then reannounce the uh, university the Ontario français and sort of where it is uh, in the process right now.
4: Yeah, well, of course you know the, the cancellation of this was certainly devastating and and francophone certainly uh, manifested their um uh, their angriness I guess at this decision um I guess the fact that the program was brought back and the project is, is going forward is certainly uh, good news. I think that the premier realized that he had to, uh, to calm us down if I, if I can put it that way. Uh, but it's a very in, in important uh, initiative that has its place because there are important needs. And if, If we don't educate our kids or if we don't give them this opportunity to to learn in French, then it has a domino effect and then it affects... Their life and the culture and everything afterwards, and, and inversely, if we don't have culture and opportunities for 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 our children, uh, you know, to to vivre en français, to continue to live in French, uh, you know, then we don't we don't encourage them to to uh, learn in French because they feel like they need to master the English more because there's not a lot of opportunity for them after to live. En français. So, you know, it's sort of a catch-22, but it, it needs to be encouraged at both ends.
2: Um, I'm wondering, I'm wanting to touch on politics a little bit here, because uh, during the last uh, election in 2018, um, you know, Doug Ford, leader Doug Ford at the time, you know, when he was asked about uh, francophone issues or what, whether or not he wanted to learn French, was very dismissive about about that, and he says, "Why do I need to learn French? I'm running in Ontario, and obviously not understanding how significant the population and the impact of the community is uh, for Ontario." But when you look at the the alignment of you know who got elected where and and with um, MPP Samar crossing the floor and joining the Liberal Party as well, there's definitely that uh, perception that Liberals seem to. Um, either understand better or know better some of the issues facing uh, francophones in Ontario to the point that it seems like most of them who, who do get elected uh, happen to be elected for the Liberal Party. I was wondering if there's anything you can sort of comment on that as to as to why potentially.
4: Um, I don't know as to the why, I just know that, uh, you know, liberals have always been more supportive of the Francophones. I think that they have that, um, they, they do recognize the importance of Francophone and they've shown it in uh, in multiple ways. I think that, uh, you know, Ford is uh, ignorant in, in that regard and that uh, any decision that he's made so far and just about the university is just to try to calm things down Because, I mean, we still don't have our independent commissioner for Francophone Affairs, which had Mm -hmm. a really important role and that needs to be brought back. That's like, you know, and we'll keep hammering that, you know, uh, until that's done. So there's definitely just a misunderstanding of the importance of the Francophones and the richness that it brings and all the opportunities and and how it just makes Ontario such such a, just so much of a better place, I think, I still don't think he understands.
2: So maybe the last thing I'll sort of ask you about Francophones, and maybe we'll go back to uh, Eastern Ontario a little bit after that, is the issue around healthcare. And with obviously COVID being, um, you know, and Ottawa being a region that is still uh, dealing significantly with, with COVID and and with issues around language, I think what people might not understand is that you know, the older you get, and the more um, distressed you are, the more likely you are going to revert back to your to your mother tongue. And with the significant population that we have here in Ontario, and not necessarily being able to provide, you know, community healthcare um, you know, delivery models such as telehealth um, in both language. Everywhere in, in Ontario, I want you. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about those concerns around providing those services for for healthcare in in French as well.
4: Yeah, and that is so important, Alvin, and I I know that firsthand because my mother's seventy seven years old. She lives with us, and uh, her English is, um, I mean. She can get by, but obviously, you know, any anyone in a vulnerable position needs to be able to speak in their language. And uh, uh, the fact that these services are not available, that no investment is being made, uh, you know, for, you know, francophone positions in all those very important fields like healthcare, uh, is a demonstration that the government doesn't understand and, you know, is letting people down on that regard uh, because. As it is, it is important, and like you said, like we have people in long-term care homes. If, if they can't express themselves, uh, and you know, they probably have difficulty expressing themselves on any good day to a person that speaks their language, but not being able to do it and express it themselves to a person that can actually understand their first language, uh, you know, just makes everything horrible, and it can lead to a really bad mistake. I mean, uh, you can have mistaken diagnosis if you, if you don't understand the person well, or you can't express yourself correctly so it it is a big issue for sure
2: so last question and uh, we'll leave this on a on a lighter note and uh wondering if you can sort of you know list some of your favorite parts of eastern ontario that people don't necessarily know you know go visit the thousand islands or skate on the Rideau or or something like that what's sort of your favorite thing that you would try to sell for eastern ontario to get uh Everyone else to go and visit, since we're probably stuck in a lockdown within the province for the next little while.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of place. I mean, Ottawa, as of course, its interest. But if you go just on the uh, the green belt, there's a lot of lovely uh, uh, pedestrian. trail that you can go to and uh, that's something that I love to do with my family and my dog they're beautiful places and uh, there's a lot of uh, you know little village outside of Ottawa and in the easterns where you can go for cheese curds or you can visit some you know really uh, adorable like boutiques in those small villages and that's you know something that on a Sunday you can do take your car and drive out for maybe half an hour and discover a little village that will offer like a lot of uh, handcraft stuff and and, uh, you know, local delicacies, that is really worth discovering. So those are just, you know, some of the things that are worth discovering.
2: Well, thank you so much, Lucille. Uh, a reminder to everyone that Lucille Coyar is the MPP for Ottawa Vanier. She's a Liberal Critic for as the Attorney General for Women's Issues, Solicitor General, Environment, Conservation and Parks. She was a lawyer, uh, personally trained, and uh, she was also the uh, Chair of the School Board for... 10 years, uh, and was elected um, during a by-election with over 52.2% of the vote, which is quite a feat for any politician, but especially for uh, a party that didn't have status. So clearly, Lucille, you uh, you outperformed, and uh, we thank you for coming onto the show today.
4: Yeah, thank you very much. I'll just add that this election uh, was in February and the day of the election was a major snowstorm. So, I'm pretty I'm very proud of those results.
2: <laughs> for sure. Thank you so thank much.
4: You. And that's
0: all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andrey, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Karima Tower Kapoor, and I'm Chris Martin. We have an amazing research intern in Harmon Mundy. If you have any thoughts about what you heard, you can get at us on Twitter at @OntarioLoud or go to ontarioloudmail at gmail.com. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of many Indigenous nations uh, in Toronto. Uh, the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ontario Laude is also recorded uh, in Vancouver on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Unceded territory was never given to settlers. It was stolen and continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. So it is important to recognize this history and even on a podcast where you might be listening somewhere else uh, to acknowledge the, the history of the land that we're on all right that's it for us this week stay safe and we'll see you next tuesday